so part of the problem is for some degree, for some institutions, for some years, yes, they, they didn't have an incentive to keep costs down because they could rely on, uh, uh, on federal loans. The problem, though, with that is that the costs became uh, a huge moment of cultural anxiety about 15 years ago. Uh, and that's never stopped. A lot of state governments have taken action to either freeze college tuition for public universities, or they've pushed through, like in New York, for example, or Tennessee, some form of public support for tuition. There's also the fact that a lot of the cost increases are kind of irrelevant to the uh, to the loans. There are a few great economists, uh, like Michael Feldman, for example, who argue pretty convincingly that if you want to hire faculty and you want to hire administration, you have to pay for them. Uh, it's like hiring uh, a dentist, I mean, or a lawyer. These are jobs that require some significant degree of of uh, training and education, if not PhD, master's level. I mean, that's a lot of work, and those jobs you know, usually don't come free. Today's episode is brought to you in part by the Georgia Impact Podcast, bringing you a first-hand look at the big opportunities and issues facing today's software entrepreneurs. On the show, they interview CEOs and founders of software companies and other thought leaders in the space, so you can hear firsthand how they're working to solve business problems with cutting-edge tech, just like we do here on The Disruptors. The show helps CEOs, founders, and product leaders, really anyone who's interested in the latest developments in software startup scene, understand a wide range of topics. Things like machine learning and AI, conversational interfaces, privacy, ethics, and trust, big problems in the AI space, blockchain, quantum computing, and other emerging technologies. You can find and subscribe to the Georgia Impact Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code DISRUPTORS. At Disruptors, we're big on health and biotech. For a reason, it amplifies everything. Disruptors.fm slash qualia. Use coupon code DISRUPTORS. And now, let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. If you thought Gandalf was sharp, you're going to love this guy with the beard of a god and the knowledge of a wizard. We've got Brian Alexander on the program. He's a futurist, researcher, writer, speaker, consultant, and teacher with an unconventional background in English and Romantic era literature. When you hear about what we discuss, you'll never understand why. He blogs at brianalexander.com. He's worked for the National Institute of Technology and Liberal Education, a nonprofit helping small colleges and universities integrate digital tech. His writing's been featured in the Washington Post, MSNBC, U.S. News World Report. And he's frequently called on to discuss the future of education, which is a big part of what we talk about today. And he's the author of The Academy of Next, The Futures of Higher Education, Gearing Up for Learning Beyond K-12, and I believe his most recent one, New Digital Storytelling. We dive deep into the education realm and how we can fix this broken and effed up world. In today's episode, we discuss Brian's thoughts on the future and flaws of higher education. The big problem with GDP and measuring the economy to track prosperity. Some other possible alternatives why Brian's incredibly worried about climate change, especially with regards to inequality, which bubble pops first, higher education or healthcare, why we may have reached peak higher education in America, 
how we can better align incentives to create a fairer, more sustainable society going forward, and why we may be entering a new era of aristocratic titans. This was a really fun episode. I know that you guys are going to love this. Brian and I actually talked even a bunch after the episode because this one was just so much fun. And I'm sure that you guys will have exactly the same feeling. If you enjoy it, consider supporting independent media like the Disruptors at disruptors.fm slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And if you can't afford to support us financially, if it's not something that's in the cards, if an extra cup or two of Starbucks a week or a month is something that would stress the bank account, then don't even think about it. This is a free program. We need to get this out there to as many people as possible to hopefully make the world a better place. So if you can't, you still want to support us. You know what? The best thing you can do for us is by leaving a review on iTunes or Apple podcast, whatever you call it, or sharing it to a friend. Those are the most impactful things for us. A positive word goes a long way. I want to thank you for listening. And now without further ado, I give you Brian Alexander. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So, Brian, I know there's a lot that you've talked about. You're a futurist. You're an educator. Talk to me about what the what the big puzzle is that's on your mind today. What keeps you up at night? What are you most focused on? Mostly I'm focused on, uh, it's going to sound kind of dry, but on um, the sustainability of uh, American higher education, Uh, trying to figure out if we can keep the colleges and universities alive through the rest of the 21st century. I would say there's not a chance unless... It's just so expensive. Let's let's dive into that a little bit. What's the most broken in your opinion? Well, one thing that's broken is that we designed contemporary higher education for the 1960s and 70s. And it was a really great system for that. And then we did things to it and our society changed. And now the system doesn't really fit anymore. So we're trying to figure out how to redesign the system. And uh, that's a really hairy, complicated subject. That's a deep, deep problem with all kinds of challenges. And if I gave you a magic wand, what would your solution look like, at least today? I'd wave it a few times. Uh, One solution would be to help colleges and universities that are now focused on teaching 18-year-olds to be able to teach older people because our population is aging. We're not alone in this. Every developed nation is aging, uh, some faster than others. But we really need to pivot on that. A second would be to, we don't have a good answer for this, but to figure out a better business model. Uh, right now, a lot of higher education is based on either, uh, well, primarily on financialization, where students take out enormous loans that are just growing in size. And within colleges, we can get pretty nerdy in the details here if you want, but they have this financial system that's kind of like buying, um, it's about as transparent as healthcare or uh, air travel. We have published tuition uh, that is usually not what is charged. People usually pay uh, something like half of what's published. And so we have to figure out a way to make college pricing uh, more transparent. If I wave that wand another way, uh, I would increase our ability to teach with and about technology. We've made some progress in that. We need to do more and more of that. And another would be to boost resources to most of higher education. We have the biggest sector in higher ed. Well, let me ask, Mark, what's the biggest chunk of higher ed in the U.S. right now? Who would you say? The bi- admin. Ah, in terms of population? Yeah. Yeah, that's quite true. That's quite true. But I was thinking in terms of institutions, I'll come back to admin in a second, but uh, community colleges are the biggest, and they have almost no money, and they do tremendous work. Uh, second biggest are state institutions, state colleges and universities, and they've been defunded by state governments. Now, the past 30 years, we've increased the number of students going through college and university, but we've decreased the amount that uh, college and universities receive in order to be able to pay for all that. Uh, so we hence loans, hence the huge student loan debacle. 
so we've got to figure out a way to give those institutions that do all this incredible work more support. Um, to go back to admin, I mean, the biggest growth area in higher education uh, has been admin. And, and admin means something peculiar in higher education. It means anybody in a campus who isn't the professor and isn't the student. So it means presidents, it means custodians, it means librarians, it means technologists, it means media people, it means security officers. I mean, it means the whole, the whole schmear. And a lot of that grew for really, really good reasons. I mean, IT, for example, our IT needs are much larger than they were 20 years ago. So we have more staff. There's a lot of federal, federal and state regulations that require more and more help. Uh, we have a lot of needs that have emerged, uh, especially in student life. And on top of that, there is some degree of uh, empire building, some degree of feather bedding. Uh, there are a lot of stories, um, a lot of scandals that we can point to. But admin as such is uh, really enormous. At the same time, we grew the number of faculty, but most of what we grew was adjunct faculty. Should I explain that? Yeah, what's adjunct? Adjunct means someone who is hired on a per-semester basis, hired and fired on a per-semester basis. So we'll hire you to teach a, um, uh, a class on Podcasting 101, and um, we'll pay you maybe, uh, say, $1,500 to do it. Uh, you won't have any uh, health care. You won't have any retirement. You won't have any job security. At any point in the semester, we can just fire you. At the end of the semester, we may or may not decide to bring you back for another $1,500. The majority of faculty in the United States uh, are adjunct. Tenure and tenure track faculty are a minority and a shrinking minority. We're all becoming Uber drivers, essentially. Basically, basically. And sometimes quite literally, uh, either that we have adjuncts who also drive Uber or Lyft in order to uh, try to pay money to stay above poverty. Most of them can't. Or I'm sorry, a lot of them can't. Uh, we also have uh, adjuncts who move from college to college. So they'll teach Podcasting 101 here, drive 40 minutes to go to another place and teach audio design there, drive 50 minutes to go someplace else and then teach Western Civ 101. And then their office is usually Starbucks or maybe their car. Uh, that's the normative uh, faculty member in the United States right now. If I can wave a magic wand and change that, that'd be one of the first things I'd do. How much of the problem with uh, higher education bubble, so to speak, is just the fact that the government tried to do the right thing by making these cheap student loans, which kind of created... Uh, Hmm. Uh, it, the, the perennial piggy bank, so to speak, of the kids can go to get that and the schools then have no incentive to bring costs down. They are incentivized to grow for growth's sake. I think there's a little bit of truth to that, but not too much. Uh, so what you described is, you know, starting in the 19, again, in the 60s and 70s, we had this huge redesign of higher ed. I mean, that's when we bulked out a lot of state systems. That's when we grew the community college system in huge ways. That's when the federal government took over a role in putting out loans and, and support. And that's when we decided as a nation that we need to get more and more people through colleges and universities. And we've been doing that ever since, which is really extraordinary and a great thing. That's actually a follow-up. Do, do you think too many people are going to college? Because I would argue that yes. Well, let's, just, so let's come back to that question. That's a okay. really, really deep and a very, very good question. So part of the problem is for some degree, for some institutions, for some years, yes, they, they didn't have an incentive to keep costs down because they could rely on, uh, uh, on federal loans. The problem, though, with that is that the costs became uh, a huge moment of cultural anxiety about 15 years ago, uh, and that's never stopped. A lot of state governments have taken action to either freeze college tuition for public universities, or they've pushed through, like in New York, for example, or Tennessee, some form of public support for tuition. There's also the fact that a lot of the cost increases are kind of irrelevant to the, uh, to the loans. There are a few great economists, uh, like Michael Feldman, for example, who argue pretty convincingly that if you want to hire faculty and you want to hire administration, you have to pay for them. Uh, it's like hiring uh, a dentist, I mean, or a lawyer. 
These are jobs that require some significant degree of, of uh, training and education, if not PhD, master's level. I mean, that's a lot of work. And those jobs you know, usually don't come free. We have other problems, other cost problems as well, uh, depending on the institution. Some have a physical plant that has to be maintained and often has to be improved. And that's costly. And on top of that, one of the secret costs that drives every administrator I know crazy is healthcare. Uh, healthcare costs are just ballooning all over the U.S. So a lot of money goes for that. On top of that, we want to have more and more college students, right? We want to have more and more students experiencing more and more classes. That's terrific. It costs money. You have to hire more and more people for that. We can't just double the size of a class. So you're podcasting one one class, which has uh, 15 students. If we turn that into a class of 100 students, yeah, we might save money, but it'll be a lower experience uh, for the students. And we usually don't do that. To go back to your question, um, are there too many students in higher education? Well, in a sense, we realized that in the year 2012, and we stopped. The total amount of students enrolled in American higher education peaked in 2012 and has gone down every semester, every year since. Now, there's two big reasons for that. Uh, do you know the for-profit sector for higher ed? Oh, uh, yeah. Coursera and other, other substances. Well, yeah, Coursera is one example, but kind of not really. Uh, what I'm referring to are uh, our colleges and universities that are uh, run by companies uh, for shareholder value. Um, there's a lot of these, maybe several thousand. Uh, there's a great book on this by Tressie Cottom called Lower Ed. You think about, say, University of Phoenix. Um, oh, the, the, the scummy ones. Oh, some of them are scummy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But it's a huge sector. It grew starting in the 90s. And it, it enrolled you know, many, many students, especially people of color, especially women. And starting around 2008, that sector began to collapse. The Obama administration did some great work in regulating them. Uh, the reputation collapsed, and that whole sector just has really shrunk in a lot of ways. Now, in many ways, that's progress. We can think, okay, if some of these were scummy, we, we, you know, we got past them. Problem is, those students haven't gone anywhere else. They haven't gone to community colleges. They haven't gone to state schools. They haven't gone to liberal arts colleges. That's, they've just been lost to higher ed. So ever, you know, ever since 2012, that population has gone down, and the community college population has gone down. Uh, unemployment rates are usually the opposite of uh, college, community college enrollment. So if you have high unemployment rates, you, I'm sorry, usually the same. If you have high unemployment rates, community colleges get more and more students. You know, it's a place to go if you're out of work to get a job, to get skills for a job. But unemployment's been very, very low. It's been down to, you know, unprecedented lows, really. And that has taken uh, quite a few students out of community colleges. So if you look at total enrollment in the United States, um, they, it's been going down uh, ever since 2012. Uh, in fact, I published a gloomy piece about this called Peak Higher Education. I ask, you know, did we actually pass the peak? And yeah, that we may have done. Uh, we may have actually passed the peak. But your question may dive into a different topic or a different part of that, which is, are students going who shouldn't be going? So not just, you know, are the schools scummy or did they go for reasons that no longer apply? But, you know, should a student go if they're 18, they have no idea what to do with their lives and they have no preparation for college? Is college a good fit for them? Is that what you're thinking of? Yes and no. It's two things, really. So Switzerland and Ger my wife is Swiss, and the the Germanic countries have a different system, which is much more an apprenticeship or a higher education based system, where about eighty percent will go through some type of apprentice style system, and the 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 top twenty percent or so will go to university because the the most people going through the university are getting jobs that have no. At that have almost, if not no, bearing to what they were working on. It it, it was completely relevant, irrelevant what they studied, and not necessary. If I want to do, if I want to be a coder, I can go learn in a three month boot camp more than I'll 
learn in four years at university more than I'll learn in a year working on my own, et cetera. Sure, sure. I mean, the apprenticeship model in Germany is quite fascinating. And I know it's deployed in Switzerland. A lot of European countries have been trying to emulate it or start emulating it. Uh, in the US, there's been some talk about this, uh, especially in Rust Belt uh, states. It hasn't gone very far yet, in part because a lot of companies, they'd really like to have higher ed take care of that training for them. They'd rather not have to spend more time helping that training process. Some of them, some of them do. Some of them will reach out. Some of them partner aggressively, either uh, financially or in terms of credits. Some start up their own universities, you can think like Motorola University, for example. Yeah, Amazon has a huge, you know, high-quality internal training system. But in many ways, businesses want to rely on a BA or an MBA to tell them what they need to know to hire somebody uh, and then to move on. I, I think you know, it's possible that we have uh, really overshot. If I talk to uh, faculty across the country, almost every college university, I find people saying, some of these students shouldn't be here. They're just, they shouldn't be studying French. Uh, they should be working in diesel technology, or they're just too immature, or they haven't had the training or the preparation, and they should go somewhere else. Problem with that, I mean, it, it may be true for individual uh, people. One problem with that, though, is that 95% of American higher education institutions are dependent on tuition to come in. So if a given college or university says, yeah, we've admitted too many students, we should shrink our class from, say, 10,000 to 8,000. That's a huge revenue hit. And most of these operate in very, very tight margins. That's really, they're not incentivized to do that. It's, you know, it, it can kill a college to have that. I mean, we often hear about someplace like Stanford or uh, Harvard, which has a huge endowment. Those are statistically outliers. I mean, they're really extraordinary. I mean, the typical school is more likely to be University of Georgia system, uh, where you are right now, you know, or uh, community college system there. And so for them, they're predicated on bringing, on teaching whoever walks in the doors. Usually uh, they have open access. So, I mean, it's possible that um, we may decide in the next one to 10 years that we have overshot our demand for higher education, that we need to not have so many people taking college classes. It may be, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, there's a, a TV star uh, who does tough jobs. Mike something or other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he argues that he's not the only one. He's just one example of this who argues that we have many, many skilled trades uh, that people can start working on at age 16 and don't need any post-secondary credit for. That a robot will not automate in the near future either. Well, I'm, I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that. But uh, right now, you know, you think HVAC, you think plumbing, you think carpentry, uh, you think electricians work. And a lot of that, yeah, we can't automate that very well yet. That's, that's stuff that is too complicated. It involves... Uh, a lot of knowledge, but it's knowledge that you learn on the job. It's knowledge that you learn by planing wood and by going into people's houses and trying to solve the puzzle of their, of their um, water. It's possible that we'll uh, have a cultural turn towards that. I mean, it may come from the right as Republicans get more and more upset at higher education. And uh, now in the age of Trump, they valorize the, the working class. They may say, all right, you know, we don't need to support uh, universities and colleges so much. Instead, maybe we should tell students at you know, high school, don't do college prep. Just leave and start working at the local woodworkers, and you'll enter the middle class in a few years and have no college debt. Well, that's a great thing. We could have that turn. That was something I've been tracking pretty closely. The hardest thing is the parents, because parents are pushing kids, oh, you've got to go to college because yada, yada, yada. It's A, a what they've heard, and B, the, the competition with Johnny's parents. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and that competition is fierce. Uh, and so if you're talking about traditional age college students, you know, teenagers, right? Uh, their parental pressure can be very intense. In fact, do you know uh, the economist Brian Kaplan? I know the name. 
Now, he's a he's a wonderful person. Uh, he's a great guest, by the way, just as a suggestion down the road. I had him on my program, and he was just wonderful. He has a recent book, which is a very, very cynical look at higher education, where he argues that the entire value that we assign to higher education is based on the diploma, not on the learning. And uh, he, he makes this case in great detail by saying you know, that a lot of learning in that four years or however many years is often forgotten, that what businesses and governments and nonprofits value is what's represented by that four-degree diploma or that two-year diploma or the MA or the PhD. And last week, during the college admissions and athletics crisis, he had a great piece in time where he said, yeah, did all those rich people, do they corrupt the system in order to get Susie into Harvard because that's a great math program? No, uh, they, got, they got them there because of that, that value, that cachet of having the Stanford, USC, Yale degree. That's the whole glory as part of that. So in a lot of ways, college parents, college student parents are competing for that. But the problem is they're trained on a cultural moment that has passed us by. What year were you born, Mark? I was born 1991. Okay. And I keep wanting to call you Mark, but it's Matt. I'm sorry. That's all good. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that happened in the 90s was that we had this cultural shock. We had this sense that industry is leaving the U.S. We're still manufacturing stuff, but it's, it's going to be done largely at scale, largely by robots. That we're going to shift is we're going to shift the whole workforce from a manufacturing labor force to a knowledge economy. And so in order to do that, we have to get people skilled up. We need to make them more knowledgeable. We have to prepare them to work as, say, podcasters or futurists. And we, we really did a lot of work to do that. And the problem is that only came true halfway in terms of capital flows. In knowledge industries made a ton of money. I mean, you think about Apple, for example, you know, one of the biggest companies in human history. The problem is they didn't employ a lot of people. In fact, most Americans shifted out of the labor section of manufacturing and into service. So the typical American worker is not a knowledge worker. It's not a uh, manufacturing worker. It's someone who works at a grocery store as a clerk. It's someone who uh, drives a bus. It's somebody who teaches yoga. The service sector is the leading part of our economy right now. And for how many of those jobs do you need a college degree? For how many of those jobs is a college degree overqualified? I mean, we have to we're, we have to go through a cultural reckoning to figure out what is the reality. But that's already going to be too old because, as you mentioned, automation is happening and automation is changing these things really, really quickly. You brought up healthcare earlier and the bubble that was brewing there. It's absurd. We pay twice as much. the The U.S. actually is the third leading country in terms of governmental spend on healthcare, although we don't have a governmental healthcare system. Most people don't realize that. But which bubble pops first, higher education and the fact that the jobs just aren't there for the costs people are paying or healthcare? Well, it may be that, um, I mean, American politics is pretty crazy right now, but it may be that within a decade that we uh, push for Medicare for all. It may be, you know, we elect uh, President Sanders in 2021. or it may be the next generation, uh, your generation of politicians. You know, maybe we have President Ocasio-Cortez or whomever, and that uh, that will take care of that bubble. I think. Um, I mean, all the economics is pretty clear that a national healthcare system usually gets better values. But and our experiment in the U.S. with private healthcare has pretty conclusively proven that while it had some good effects, it's uh, much more costly and has a lot of problems. So uh, that could happen within a decade. I mean, it's uh, but health, but education itself. That might pop first. I mean, I mentioned that, uh, that decline of enrollment uh, ever since 2012. If that keeps going, I mean, people are going to view this period as the downhill slope of a peak. Um, it may be that the, the bubble pops not as dramatically as the uh, housing bubble did in 2008, but uh, it popped nonetheless. 
How do we replace higher education for the future? I know one of the things you brought up, which I thought was very smart, was the focus of higher education towards older older audiences. One thing that I've seen that is fascinating for me is taking retirement age people and having them live on campus with students because A, that helps them live longer, they can study, they can learn and have experiences and also helps the younger students get a little bit more of a perspective. Is that the future, some type of merging of these two? It's one I've been arguing for for about a decade and it's starting to happen in the US. Uh, Arizona State University, for example, has this new project where they have a dorm, I'm sorry, they don't call it a dorm. It's incredibly expensive and they call it something like residential housing. Uh, but basically, it's a dorm uh, where you can move in if you're a senior. And uh, if you do that, then you get to, as you said, spend time with young people. You get to go to any classes. You get to take in any films or performances or exhibits. They encourage you to be a docent in museums and that kind of thing. It's a great idea. I think we should see more and more of that. Uh, Rollins College in Florida, Winter Park, Florida, has this nice program where they have, for senior citizens, they can take a first-year undergraduate experience. So, you know, Rhetoric 101, Great Books, Biology 101, that kind of thing. And uh, it's a big hit because you have lots of retirees who either they're, they're worried about their brains and, uh, and uh, memory issues and they want to keep pushing learning for that. Uh, it may be that this is something they've dreamed about doing their whole adult lives but never had the chance to do. It may be that um, they're bored. It may be that they're you know, a new change of life uh, and they're very curious. I think a lot of higher education has to pivot in that direction. I mean, see, this is one of the great things, uh, Matt, is that we're living in an incredible success story in terms of our population. I mean, for the past century or so, we've done things like we've improved public health, we've made breakthroughs in medical technology and treatment. Above all, we've uh, embraced the education of women. And all these things combined mean that we tend to have fewer kids and later in life. As a result, the population, the overpopulation of fears we had in the 60s and 70s are really backing off. There's a new book about this, which, which has a kind of exalted title of Empty Planet. And that's an actual concern now. If you go to Japan, for example, or parts of Northern Europe, where they, the proportion of the population who is of working age is starting to shrink, they're actually concerned. I mean, how do you run an economy when most of it, or not most of it, but a good chunk is uh, retired? So, you know, this is a, it, it may be that we have to think of education as a lifelong process. We, we've said this in education for a long time. We use the slogan, lifelong learning. But we may actually have to really mean it. So, you know, at 18, uh, maybe you go down uh, to a community college and you study for two years and you get a, a degree in, say, drone managing. And then you do that for 10 years. And then uh, you say, well, I'm actually kind of interested in music. So part time, you take a class from Stanford. Maybe it's entirely online in uh, music performance. And then you spend you know, half your career now, half the time uh, playing music and still managing drones and doing that on the side. And then years later, you decide that you really, really want to work on healthcare. The health means a lot to you. So you start a biology degree from scratch. I mean, we could have these like learning episodes where we check in on higher education throughout our lives. That's a very, very different model than the, I'm 18, I go away to a four-year undergraduate institution and get a degree and donate for the rest of my life. It's a very different degree. Uh, it's a very different model. And it's one that I think we should really explore carefully. It's a different world. Kids these days will have five to 12 careers over the course of their life. And often overlapping or simultaneously. Yeah. I mean, I, I show my kids uh, Mad Men and uh, they think it's hilarious. It's like watching Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's a completely alien world, as it is to a degree for you as well. And they, um, one of the things that strikes them is the idea that you could have one job, one career, one employer for life. I mean, that's just you know, that's science fiction for them. Instead, you have multiple careers, multiple jobs, multiple employers, sometimes at the same time. 
I want to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Design Crowd. This is the company that designed the podcast cover art for the Disruptors. Also, Fringe FM, before we had to change the brand name because of those UFO crazies. If you go to disruptors.fm slash design crowd, that's D-E-S-I-G-N-C-R-O-W-D. You can check that out and tell them we sent you. That helps us with making the podcast more sustainable. And it'll definitely help you because you'll have designers around the world competing to create the best graphic design projects for you, whether that's a logo, cover art, anything, you name it. That's disruptors.fm slash design crowd. So you brought up um, you brought up the fact that the aging population could be a problem. How much of that is actually a problem and how much of that is the problem of us having GDP as the end all be all of all godliness in terms of the metric that we track? It's really hard to get past GDP. People have tried ever since GDP was invented, and we haven't really come up with a good metric yet. And we know all the problems with GDP. I mean, it doesn't measure some things that it should. It doesn't measure a lot of homework, domestic work. It, uh, it's a fudge in many ways, but no one has accepted a replacement yet. And there are tons of replacements out there. There's the other problem that we tend to view um, economics as the uh, end-all and be-all of life. Exactly. That was, that was my point. If the GDP is not going up, it's either staying stagnant or going down. Right. And, um, and that's, a, that's, you know, it's trivial to find out how, how much that misses of life. I mean, my PhD is in English literature. That's not a money-making proposition, but it enriches my life. I like to think it enriches the lives of you know, my readers and my students. And some of them agree. And, and that's wonderful. But it's, 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 hard to, it's hard to measure that. It's hard to account for that. So do we account for happiness, for example? It's tricky. And within higher education, there are a lot of people who will say things like, we shouldn't run higher education as a business, that we shouldn't, that we should look for non-financial outcomes, that someone should be able to go to college and study something that has no monetary benefits whatsoever, but you know, makes their life better. I think we may see a return to this once automation really begins to take hold. I mean, so I, I think it, you know, there's two possibilities here. One is that we could see a world with widespread unemployment and underemployment. I mean, there have been hints of this since 1990 or so, where, I mean, we tend to make more money with automation, but make fewer jobs. Uh, I mean, there was this great stat when Instagram, I'm sorry, when Kodak went out of business. Uh, in New York State, there was something like 40,000 people unemployed as a result. And that week, Instagram had, I think, 500 employees. You know, we, you know it's possible that we'll just have um, fewer and fewer people working and more and more machines doing work, in which case, one of the purposes of higher education shifts is it to give people ways of living when they're not on the job. What about paying people to study? Some colleges do this. You know, they give uh, generous stipends and they don't charge tuition. Uh, you'll see this in Europe, for example. And it's possible that we might do this. Right now, though, I think uh, the cultural climate in the U.S. is opposed to that. You know, we, we really uh, we don't like paying people if we can help it. And higher education is still financially in such a mess that it's really hard to make a case for that. Do you think that do you think that inevitably the US is screwed because here it's not a team sport and going into the future if we are going to have a world where there is more and more automation displacing jobs it has to be viewed as a team sport otherwise it's kind of taking Sally out back and shooting her in the head. <laughs> and in in a sense people don't want to say it. I had a I had another guy on the program um I can't remember his last name Brian something but he was bringing up the point of he was designing he was designing space stations in Mars. And looking at the concept of what happens when you have someone that's living there with you that's not pulling their weight, because they are pulling their oxygen, what's the point where you have to put him outside the enclosure 
and let him suffocate himself because he's taking everyone else down. Well, how do we think about that if we're not on that team ship mentality? Is it is it bulletproofing the Teslas? Oh, that's a great question. And we will start bulletproofing Teslas pretty quickly, I think. I mean, one of the things that's remarkable for the past 10 years is that nobody shot a banker. You know, no one's, uh, no one's beaten to death uh, a regulator. I mean, we had the worst financial crash in nearly 100 years in American history. And we let people skate. With bonuses, no less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we didn't prosecute anybody. Except, you know, Madoff, who doesn't count. I mean, it's really, um, uh, it's astonishing. I, I think part of American culture is very um, interested in punishment, uh, very vindictive, very interested in individual accountability. And that's one part of our culture. But at the same time, we're also, I think, very forgiving. Uh, we are, are willing to grant a lot of people, depending on their status, uh, a second chance. You know, you can think about, um, for some people, the origin of this is Iran-Contra, uh, which would, uh, should have disabled George Bush the first from being president. Instead, we elected him uh, almost twice. You know, you think about um, how the intelligence community completely failed on September 11th. And, you know, no, no hearings as a result of that. You know, uh, you think- I think we give a second chance to the people we look up to, but to the ones that we look down on, we would never consider a second chance. What do you say to that? I think that's often true, but it also depends on if we look down to people. Because so we still love underdogs. I mean, this is, this is a classic dilemma in America. We, we're a republic that believe, I mean, lowercase r, republic, uh, that believes in individual people. We believe in the little guy. We believe in the uh, underdog. We like that. At the same time, we've never shaken our love of aristocracy. I mean, we have this huge cult of celebrity. That's just insane. I mean, it's really extravagant. And we love aristocratic families. And I mentioned Bush, right? We have the Bushes. We have the Clintons. You know, we really do love our, our hereditary aristocracy. And I think as income inequality and wealth inequality continues to escalate and get steeper and steeper, those two cultural attitudes will just keep bouncing back and forth, uh, where we'll have, you know, people who adore, you know, Bezos or uh, Carlos Slim or whatever comes out of Hollywood. And then we'll have people who think, no, this is wrong. We should support the lower case. But yeah, if, if usually, you know, the, you know, if you are more photogenic, if you are whiter, if you are uh, from certain geographical regions, yeah, we're more likely to give you a, a second chance, a second pass. I don't know if we're going to become more uh, lifeboat oriented. There's a wonderful, wonderful book by Rebecca Solnit uh, called The Paradise Built in Hell. And I recommend it to every human on earth. What she does in this book is she looks at terrible disasters. She looks at horrible crises like a Katrina. And what she identifies is people not thinking like a lifeboat, you know, not chucking people out, not turning to Mad Max style dystopia, but instead helping each other out, doing mutual aid, being generous, self-organizing to keep a human community healthy and growing. I mean, it's one of the most optimistic books I've ever touched in my entire life. And I think just, she's a great writer in general, but this is one that's really extraordinary. So it may be, I mean, looking ahead, uh, what happens to the person who clings to uh, their job as a um, truck driver, right? Because you know, it's, it's, you know, automating trucks makes all kinds of sense for all kinds of ways. So what do we do with that uh, John Henry style truck driver? I mean, some people will say, well, fire him, get rid of him, drag on the system, and uh, he can go back and retrain. I mean, that's the Democratic Party's position is, uh, that's their attitude towards the Rust Belt. People can be retrained. Usually doesn't work. And so some people might say, well, gosh, maybe we should support him. You know, I mean, go fund me. Maybe we should set up more crowdfunding to keep people alive uh, from automation. Uh, if there isn't such a thing right now, we've just invented on this program. So congratulations. And what happens when the first truck driver drove, drives his truck into something as his way to off himself? We have, uh, we have another, another big problem. 
Well, we, there, there's precedent for that. I mean, the, the Luddites are very interesting um, historically. They're not that well understood, but uh, you know, this idea that the technology renders you obsolete, so it should be destroyed, or they should be destroyed, them, or they should destroy themselves. I mean, if you look at the Russian history in the 1990s, you had this huge collapse in mortality. Uh, you had lots, lots of people, especially men, who killed themselves or died under what looks like suicidal circumstances. You know, lots of men who would just drive off the road or um, be found dead having drunk all night outside the Wednesday or the, on a February morning in Moscow because they're heartbroken by the by the collapse of their system, by the collapse of the uh, of their dream, the collapse of the system that supported them as well at times. And so we may have, you know, a massive conflagration of uh, people who are out of work. I mean, uh, uh, say um, bank tellers, you know, hasn't happened yet, but uh, grocery store clerks or uh, forklift drivers. I mean, all these positions that can be automated. Well, you know, will people? What will people do? And there, there may be protests. I mean, that's one explanation of the 2016 presidential election. Is uh, it's controversial, but people still say is that you had a lot of people voting for Trump out of economic terror that they'd be uh, out of work. Um, and we may we have that roiling moment of cultural disturbance that could come up. Now, the other model of this, though, I mean, the historical model for 200 years is whenever we invented a new technology, we've meant it's, it's thrown some people out of work, it's ended some professions, but it's grown more uh, new ones. So you're in Atlanta, right? So in the summer in Atlanta, it gets pretty hot. Well, the way we used to, uh, we had this wonderful job, a whole ecosystem in the uh, 1800s that people would cut ice out of lakes and rivers in Connecticut and New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont. And they would float, put it in ships and sail it down to South Carolina, Atlanta, and Florida. So you guys would have ice. There's a whole business, a fascinating business, really, just to look at. I mean, the historical photos are amazing. And we stopped that because we met the hydro, you know, refrigeration. Wow. Terrible news for the whole ice industry. Bad, bad news. But, but we grew a bigger industry that employed more people. That's usually the pattern. So it may be that we create new jobs. So, you know, say a podcast manager, job that wouldn't have existed in 2003. Now we can imagine that now. Or artificial intelligence ethicist, which we're starting to grow right now. But I think what's more likely is that we will see jobs become more and more cyborg jobs. Some will involve literal cyborgs, you know, where you have implants in your body. But I think it's more and more that to do your work, you will have to work with AI and with other technologies. So, I mean, right now, uh, we see this in elections. Um, election consultants have to work with incredibly powerful data managing tools, as well as mapping tools. You know, you're doing your job right now of podcasting. I mean, in a sense, you're an oral storyteller with, you know, using all kinds of technology to make that work. When you think about job after job, how much we require interacting closely with big data, with different hardware, different software, I think that's where higher education comes in. We help prepare students for a cyborg future. I like to, when someone brings something up, to go to the extreme. And I think in this situation, it's, it's prescient and also sad. If tomorrow, suddenly, we automated all, away all jobs and our lives become pure bliss, we were able to manufacture whatever we wanted without human labor, we'd all kill ourselves because none of us, or kill, better yet, we'd all go to kill someone else and steal their shit because we wouldn't have anything because we wouldn't have any type of income coming in because none of us would be collectively willing to support the other. And that's, it, it's kind of a utopian dystopia. Is it not? You just described two different uh, worlds. One is utopian, one is dystopian. Um, in Britain, they often speak kind of tongue-in-cheek of fully automated luxury communism, uh, which is just this great... I don't know if you've seen that phrase. 
It's just, you know, if you think about it, you know, this, this is the dream. This is the Jetsons dream. We're actually much better than that, that, you know, if you can, uh, if people don't have to work and we can set up the structures to provide them with sufficient income and support so they can live and live well, that's fantastic. And that's a dream to realize. So that's one extreme. So let's put that on the table, you know, you know fully automated luxury economies, push that out there. But then the other extreme is, well, everyone's out of work and people are at best uh, living on some meager combination of the dole, you know, they're on the, some basic subsistence level thing that keeps just just keeps the wolf a few feet from the door. No, what I'm saying is they're the same thing. So let's say we get to that point of automation. The problem being, let's say we can produce. We're not that far off from energy being almost free. Let's say we get to the point where we can produce as much as we want to. Factories are cranking these out, but because no one has any money to buy anything. We're mass producing shit to throw into a landfill, not giving it to people, because giving it to people would be redistribution, and that's against the American way. That's kind of what it feels like. It kind of feels like it would be the utopia if it could only escape the dystopia of who we are. <laughs> that's the story of utopias right there in a nutshell. You know, there's, there's been some jokes I've heard. Can we figure out a way to, attack, you know, to levy income tax on robot workers to keep things going? You know, one one way your dystopia could play out is that we have uh, an elite who are the elite of the machines. You know, the people who own the machines, the people who are or own the services that support them. So you can think of uh, Goldman Sachs, for example. You know, offering financial support to every IPO for every company. You could think about you know the, the companies, you know, the owners of companies that do these things, and that the rest of us are basically peasants in the middle of a silicon nightmare. You know, this is one vision of dystopia that people are terrified of. And you can find this in science fiction. You know, people think, how do you maintain a society like this? You know, you have to figure out some way of either tranquilizing the population or terrorizing the population. So, and we can be tranquilized pretty well. I mean, you think about, imagine, imagine Americans, if we have a combination of some basic minimum income, however that's set up, you know, we have some basic access to healthcare, not very good, but some basic access. We have lots of computer games. We have lots of online pornography. And we have cat videos without end. Is that population likely to rise up and demand expropriation of the digital masters? Eh, possibly not. That's one. The other is terror. Uh, and we have all kinds of ways to terrorize people. We have massive amounts of surveillance. Uh, we have uh, fantastic technologies of war. In fact, one of the great stories of automation that almost nobody talks about is the increasing automation of warfare. I mean, right now in international law, there's a serious intellectual problem, which is who's responsible when an automated drone takes out the wrong person or blows up the wrong building. You know, it's, it's like an old philosophy question, but now it's a very practical one. Who do you sue? Who do you put in the dock? So you know, we could terrorize a population so that they just don't want to uh, revolt. I mean, I think there's a wonderful book by Peter Fraze where he talks about um, futures of automation. And these are two that he describes uh, and wants us to avoid and wants us to think now in the present, you know, how can we avoid that? I think we'd have to have a, a kind of cultural reckoning where we rethink ourselves as social beings. I think Solnit's model helps us a lot in this. I think in extremity, we tend to help each other. I think more than we tend to name each other. But right now, escalating inequality makes that really, really difficult. I mean, so far, America is generally speaking pretty okay with growing something like an aristocracy. We, it's, not just, it's not just okay, it's vaunted. It's looked up upon. I'm saying okay is the average. You know, we have the left of, say, Bernie Sanders, but then we also have the right that celebrates it, as you said. You know, you think about uh, lifestyles that are rich and famous or just, you know, the, the huge celebrity culture, which really values this. 
or you think about how how often now we are looking to celebrities or very rich people, usually both, uh, to run for office. Right? You know, Oprah for president. Right? We want uh, William Bloomberg for president. I mean, it's a it's it's almost like a cartoonish version of the 1890s. Uh, you start to see the Monopoly Man come out and wink and nod and become governor. But we have to. I think I think this is a time to rethink that. And it may be that climate change is one way that makes us rethink it. Climate change is so systematic, so holistic, so totalistic that it's not enough to say, I've got mine. Uh, it's not enough to admire a banker who has a fantastic uh, fortified compound up in the Appalachians or up in the, uh, up in, um, you know, the Adirondacks, safe from floods. The systematic nature of climate change, the interconnected nature of this requires us to rethink. And if we take climate change at all seriously, that may be the spur for making us rethink our attitude towards each other. I had, a, I had a dream last night, and Bezos was in the dream. He was dressed up in this real white evil suit with the reddish eye, these reddish eyes, and it was just pure evil, and he had a bunker built on Mars. And I bring this up because I feel like we have this divergence between wealth, the haves and have-nots in terms of people moving towards sustainability and people moving away from it. Bezos has argued we should just He's basically said we should implement UBI because he's basically saying, checkmate, I, I'm going to win. And it certainly looks that way in a lot of ways. Is there, is there a way around this? And if we did, if we did reach a stage where we, suddenly automation came on us faster than we expected, things were exponentially faster, would Europe and Northern Europe be the, uh, and possibly China, be the only ones who could really handle it because they had cultures that were at least adapted enough to handle helping someone else out? Well, keep in mind that even even while we are hyper individualized, we also do have many structures for helping each other out. Uh, I mean, a lot of America is a very religious country. We have quite a few uh, religious organizations that do a lot of philanthropic work and a lot of community work. I don't belong to any myself, but I mean, sociologically, I can observe them. We have many, many as well uh, other organizations that help. Everything from you know, the unions that survive to uh, civic organizations. And I think we may see more of them. But I do, uh, I, I I do wonder how we rethink the value of a human being. And this goes back to your GDP question. I mean, do we value the, the true depth and complexity of an individual as someone who we should respect and support? Or do we turn them into an object? I mean, you know, there's a great, great science fiction writer whose novel has been turned into many movies named Philip Dick. And uh, one of his great themes was the human capability of empathy. And when can, how can we treat people like people? Uh, for him, the figure was the robot. When do we treat people like robots, you know, a thing to be used? And when do we act like robots when we treat people without empathy? I think other countries have other ways of proceeding. We haven't talked much about China, but China has developed this new system that is taking the world by storm, this combination of 20th century capitalism and communism, you know, this, this interesting hybrid of 21st century surveillance with some form of 20th century representative democracy built in. I mean, it's this complex fusion that we don't really have a name for. Um, and it's starting to spread because their influence is starting to spread through uh, you know, their uh, One Belt, One Road initiative. That's one option for the future. I don't know how stable it is. It's not one that I find personally attractive, but it's hard to deny its enormous success. I mean, one of the great stories of the past 30 years has been the enormous boom in, uh, in China. It's elevation of people out of, pop, out of poverty into the middle class. Uh, in terms of higher education, they have built more universities and colleges than any civilization in human history has to date in less time. Just a huge, huge growth. 
I mean, it's really amazing to look at. But I, I, I think, you know, you asked when we were preparing for this podcast, you asked before what people should be thinking of. I think one thing to do is to pay careful attention to science fiction. And we don't do it enough. But science fiction has been thinking hard about this I mean, since the beginning. Uh, you know, you look at uh, Frankenstein, and one of the great themes of that is how do you treat a creation? And how do you treat other people? We have to, I think we have to really listen hard to science fiction to try to figure out what it's been teaching us. There's a fun book from the uh, early 1970s, Crazy Idea Science Fiction. Uh, it's called The Shockwave Runner. And in the future, people are connected by computers. They're connected by, cell, by, by telephone lines. People have virtual communities on the line. Uh, bad hackers, uh, bad programmers called hackers write programs that crash each other's programs. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty prescient. I think we'd like to, I think we need to keep a closer eye on SF to, uh, to learn more. Should that be something that's forcibly put into schools and replace, if so, what? Well, I would always like to see SF in schools. Actually, we, I mean, we could just put that into English. You just get rid of some of the classics and you replace it with things that. It's, it's hard. It's hard to, I mean, there's, there's still a lot of cultural resistance to it, especially from uh, older people from, they, you know, they were raised to treat science fiction as something that's embarrassing, you know, something that's tawdry. Um, I think it's, it's come closer and closer to the mainstream, but we're, we're not fully there, but yeah, I think, uh, I mean, this is what future is thinking does. Future is thinking teaches you to do the kind of scenario development that you just did talking about the future in a different way. How the future could be different from the present. I had a good friend who worked at a small college where he went around to all the professors and asked them, how is this college going to be different 40 years from now? And the super majority of them, like 85% of them said, this can be the same, same size, teach the same subjects, same kind of students. Yeah, unchanged. Um, you know, we have to get out of that frame of mind. We have to think more boldly. I mean, here's an example. Here's an example. I keep coming back to the thing of escalating income inequality. And you quite rightly mentioned the fact that American um, healthcare is uh, a mess. Well, one of the interesting side effects is that now, biologically, we're starting to see the signs of a difference in Americans. If you are born wealthy and remain wealthy, you tend to live a very, very different biological life. You are uh, less likely to be afflicted with certain um, illnesses and even accidents. You're going to live much longer. People are starting to, you know, that's, that's a subtle and creepy thing to think about. Did you ever read The Time Machine, the great H.G. Wells novel? I didn't, but it's, uh, yeah, it's 10, it's 10 years difference between the top 10% and the bottom 10%. 10 years. I mean, think about that. And we haven't started genetic engineering yet, which I, I think will be a accelerant of that. Absolutely. I mean, who gets to afford genetic engineering, right? And, and, and by what, what abilities? I mean, this is, you know, the scandal of the uh, admissions and uh, college athletic scandal I mentioned before. That's nothing. Right. In part, it's not, a, it's not a scandal. I mean, who was it? I think it was Dr. Dre said, oh, yeah, my daughter got into college on her own merits. Did you hear this story? No. And he gave that college a million, $7 million donation. He just forgot to mention that. I mean, it's, it's kind of embarrassing to think about. So in, in the time machine, in the far future, I mean, the far future, it's you know, almost a million years in the future, humanity is developed into two completely different species. And they're basically cartoonish versions of workers and owners, uh, the Morlocks and the Eloys. Book's only like 110 pages, public domain, grab it. It's astonishing to read in so many ways. But if we're at that stage now, are we ready for that? I mean, are we ready to admire people who are more beautiful, stronger of limb, uh, fairer face because they've had the biological power, the healthcare power for that? Are we ready for this? Parts of American culture would embrace it. We have to think hard about this. There's a fantastic economist, uh, Thomas Piketty, who has his, uh, his great work, Capital of the 21st Century, and he points out that Something weird happened in the 21st in the 20th century that we don't really realize how weird it was. 
from around 1914 to about 1950, we destroyed huge amounts of wealth in the world. With two spectacular world wars, we had the Great Depression. These were all global affairs. And along during that process, we also reconfigured our societies so that we had in the US, we had the New Deal, in Britain, national health care, in the Soviet bloc, you know, the former Soviet socialism. And so from about 1950 to about 1980, roughly, we were the least unequal we've possibly ever been economically. And possibly ever will be. And that's Piketty's uh, dark conclusion, because starting around 1980, we reversed that trend. And right now, 2019, we are somewhat around like 1900, 1910 levels of income inequality. Uh, a Swiss bank published a report a couple of years ago where they refer to our time as the new gilded age. And you know, they're Swiss bank, they're not complaining here. Right? I mean, this is advice for their, for their bankers. So are we just back to the normal you know, state of affairs? Uh, if that's the case, then we just might accept seeing you know, people who uh, have that kind of biological power, that kind of difference. Let's go a little further. Your dream was Bezos, right? Yeah. Okay. And he had a colony on Mars, right? So who gets to go into space? I mean, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, it was a very meticulously derived elite, you know, a combination of scientific background and, and military background and all that. But we've already had a couple of millionaires uh, fly into space. Maybe that becomes the elite. I mean, we, we have to think about where this could take us. And then when we look at elementary schools, there was a piece in Bloomberg uh, about a week ago that had this uh, great story about private kindergarten classes and how some of the private kindergartens in New York cost uh, $30,000 a year, and they were competitive. One of them mentioned they only accepted 10% of their students. Okay, so, or 10% of applicants, kindergartners. So what happens if from age one, you are raised to be one of H.G. Wells's Eloy, you know, someone who's going to be surrounded with the best support, you'll have project-based learning, you'll have a freedom from surveillance, you'll have lots of interactions with people, and then a couple of blocks away, because that's how we do things in American cities, we will have the majority, the 99%, uh, who are raised in surveillance, who are raised with more, perhaps, rote learning, more testing, who are aware of a culture of obedience around them. That's a grim picture. That's where I think, in many ways, education has the potential to blow that open. I mean, because when we have public education, people are forced to be in the same room together. Uh, when we have mass education, people have to learn together. That gives us a chance to expose them to possibilities of difference. That's what I have hopes for. I mean, that we can really, there's a brief moment in, in learning. If it's learning in front of your laptop, if it's learning in a classroom filled with 100 people, where you're devoted to the whole possibility of human imagination, that's a radical spot. And I think that's where I look for a lot of options for change. For that kindergarten thing, the, the, when kids either come into pre-K or kindergarten, I'm not positive on the stat. Uh, the ones from lower income households have heard 30,000 less words over the course of their lifetime. 30,000. I just want to let that sink in. It's crazy. Think about that. I mean, that's, that's a difference. And that's a difference that's just that's built in right now. And so I, it's hard to treat that. It's hard to treat that. Because in America, as you mentioned before, we have the individualistic uh, mentality. We have the sense of, you know, you deserve what you're born into. You, uh, and this is not a, a, a partisan thing. Um, there's a lot of beliefs in uh, New Age circles that, uh, you know, you, uh, if you get cancer, it's because you somehow invited it into you, which I always find breathtakingly inhumane. But, you know, we accept that in a lot of ways. Can we change it? There's a lot of pressure in education right now to change this, uh, to try to, you know, have education revise the world. It's hard for educators to do. We have a lot of responsibilities, but it is one possible area for social transformation. 
And no one gives a shit about teachers. No one's willing to pay teachers, even though they're the ones who bring the next generation into hopefully a better future. It's like teachers have to go on strike to have relatively living wages. And isn't that fascinating? Because these were wildcat strikes organized through Facebook. I mean, these weren't, you know, I mean, I'm not not talking about the uh, Chicago teacher strike from a couple of years ago, which was, you know, went through normal channels. But, you know, we're talking about West Virginia, we're talking about Oklahoma. I mean, these are, these are teachers who are self-organizing. I mean, it's like something from the 1920s. Um, it's really extraordinary. We may see more of that, but still, it's, th- there's a lot of cultural baggage. There's a lot of cultural attitudes to change about that. A lot of uh, K-12 through teachers, especially primary school teachers, are women uh, whose uh, economic value is usually downgraded. We don't take it as seriously. And also, I mean, we have other things that have happened as well. We've had uh, homeschooling, which has been in many ways very successful. Uh, we, uh, we've had many, many uh, people homeschooled for decades now. We also have lots of options for online learning, some horrible, some excellent. You know, we're really mixing this up. Speaking of mixing this up, I'm conscious of time, uh, and I'm going to have to um, run in about 10 minutes or so. You know, but I, I don't want to lose any other dreams you have or any other questions that you have. I have one big dream to leave everybody with from the wise man with the incredible Gandalf beard. And that's if you had to leave People with one thing, a quote, a call to action, what would it be and why? Imagine the different future and then see how you can get there from the present day. And then multiply it or divide it by 10 because things happen so much faster and go so much bigger than you would ever expect. They really can. They really can. We have the, we have the technologies to uh, really have things go wide very, very quickly. You know, everything from mobile devices to um, the internet to really push things back and forth. I think this is why, again, this is a, a special role for education, is to help people think this through. Uh, one of the slides I love showing people in education is of uh, uh, a riot. I point out that if you teach students how to use technologies, they might not do the things that you like. And that's something, you know, student, it's, it's remarkable. It's like um, uh, when the U.S. Uh, invaded Iraq and put up a, a democratic system there, it was, you know, the, the government that hoped that the, that the population would vote accordingly, that they wouldn't vote for the wrong people. It's weird. You give people choices, how they take those choices, and they might not be the choices you make. Parents know this uh, all the time. So I think, you know, in education, we have to to really train the next couple of generations of people how to do this. But those generations are, to go back to an earlier point, also older people, people who are 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. I mean, we can live, uh, you know, up to 100 in many ways now. I, I think if we have lifelong education, I think that gives us the chance to imagine something different and better. The, the quote or the way I think about this is, you're either living or you're dying. And I firmly believe that. Social security was a, a, was a scam when it was created because they realized people were dying like a year and a half after they retired because they had no purpose. When you stop learning, when you stop doing, when you stop living, you start dying. Brian, thanks for coming today. This has been a lot of fun. Where's the best place for people to learn more about you and what you do? Either go to futureofeducation.us, which will show you a bunch of my projects, or go to my blog, brianalexander.org. And of course, guys, we'll throw links and all that in the show notes. Thanks for coming today, Brian. Mom, my pleasure. Really great talking with you. Thank you so much. And hope you guys have enjoyed this. If you have, remember, we could really use your support on Patreon, disruptors.fm slash Patreon. And now we will talk to you guys again soon. Cheers. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.